Welcome to the Truth Labs Podcast with me, Gary Schroeder. Yesterday, I noticed my daughter had used a green marker to write words all over her right hand. I couldn't make out the words except for the one that was scrawled in uppercase letters across her thumb. Die. D-I-E. Finding that a bit disconcerting, I asked her, why does your thumb say die? She replied, because I wrote it there. So helpful. My daughter's answer was technically correct. She was just addressing a different kind of why than I was. She was talking about the mechanics of the ink being there rather than her purpose in putting it there. So for this episode of the Truth Labs podcast, we're going to continue to read a little bit and comment on the book, Talking With Your Kids About God, 30 Conversations Every Christian Parent Must Have by Natasha Crane. Uh, and that was an excerpt from, from one of the chapters. Um, I'm going to combine a couple of chapters here um, because I think we're in this section on uh, science versus God. And at least so far, at least so far, some of the chapters I don't think are, are useful enough to dedicate an entire episode on. And, uh, and that's two chapters together, though, may give us something a little bit more meaty to chew on. So two chapters here. One is, do science and religion contradict each other? Another chapter, do science and religion complement each other? Okay, so on the contradict side, uh, I'm going to read some of the key points at the end of the chapter and then comment a little bit uh, because some of the chapters, they're, they're introducing topics. They're useful um, in, in introducing something. Um, and maybe it's because the audience is intended to be a parent and equipping a parent and how they may want to talk to their kids. But since we're using it more broadly than that, um, they just personally, they, they leave me kind of wanting. And so uh, I'll mention a few things and then, then comment a little bit. So do science and religion contradict each other? To the book, key points. The age of the earth and evolution account for the vast majority of science versus religion debates in America. Mainstream scientists today believe that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, while some Christians believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old, a view called young earth creationism. This is a tension that young earth creationists acknowledge while emphasizing the priority of starting from young earth interpretation of scripture. Christians have varying views on evolution. Even for Christians who accept evolution, a fundamental conflict with the mainstream scientific consensus remains over whether there is an intelligence behind evolution. For the majority of Christians who reject evolutionary theory in favor of the understanding that God created life directly, the conflict between scientific consensus and religious belief is even more significant. The accurate interpretation of scientific data and the accurate interpretation of the Bible will never be in true conflict. 
when apparent conflict arises, at least, one, interpre one interpretation is wrong. Which interpretation is wrong is a matter of debate, debate even among Christians. So we're getting into this uh, question here, are science and God, do, do they contradict? And again, we have to be quite specific like we did in a previous episode, um, not to carelessly just say something like science or carelessly just say something about, say, the word God. Because what we're really referring to is not science. It's a specific branch of science or a particular area of scientific exploration. And we're not just talking about God generally, the abstract notion that a thing beyond nature may or may not exist, but a specific religion's claims about the activity of that God or the nature of who that God is. And so the two that are called out in this chapter, which I think are, are quite accurate, and again, we are, you know, the author of this book is a Christian and is has a very particular angle of uh, the topics that she discusses in that angle is from a Christian perspective. So I don't have enough knowledge to talk about um, any other monotheistic religions, any pantheistic religions, anything like that to talk about what they may, what the debates between their religious uh perspectives and worldviews, what they say that may or may not contradict with a particular area of scientific exploration. So we're going to stay within the boundaries of the book um, and frankly within the boundaries of what I can intelligently or at least try to intelligently talk about. And it's going to be kind of this notion of the Christian worldview, which is, is quite similar to at least the um, Jewish worldview because we take this, the Christian would take this from what they call the Old Testament or from the Jewish scriptures, really from uh, the book of Genesis, but using some other verses as well. And so from that perspective or with that background, the main conflict that's called out here, and I think it's accurate, is between uh, not science generally, but particularly around the age of the earth. So a notion of within science of geology and evolution. So let's get down not just broad science, but those specifically those specific fields. And specifically, the conflict there arises around the age of the earth. Okay, so a geological tension or contradiction. And uh, a geologist would say, based on the evidence they have, the earth is at least four and a half billion years old. Well, if you are a Christian, and again, Christians are not... Um, how would you put it, not some monolithic entity that all marched to the same drum, right? Um, so it's hard to talk about people, you know, billion, billions potentially of people throughout history alive today. Can't talk about what they all believe, but there's a group, at least this author calls them, and I think maybe it's kind of a standard labeling is young earth creationists. So there is a group of people that say uh, the earth, like basically time began at like 4004 BC. And so that would say, and that's based on tracing as far as they're able to tracing the biblical chronology back 
to Adam or from Adam to today and saying basically the earth is 6,000 years old. And so you have to kind of say um, if there is truth and if it's possible to know truth, then what is true is true, but what is the opposite of that truth is false. And so that is high level, perhaps nebulous claim, but useful when we're getting into these things um, because one of those things, it could be that both of those things are wrong. Those, both of those things mean, being uh, the earth is 4.5 billion years old, the earth is 6,000 years old. Um, it could be that both of those things are wrong. It could also be that one of them is right, true. And if one of those things is right, one of those things is true, then the other one definitionally is wrong. Definitionally is wrong. Um, if I ask you, uh, how tall is my mother? You could give a height. <laughs> you could say, you know, six feet tall. You could say two meters tall, however you're measuring height. And then I ask someone else, uh, say one person says six feet. We'll use that measurement. Another person says five feet, three inches. Another person says five feet, 10 inches. Well, all of those claims can be wrong, but not all of those claims can be right. And so a person that says the earth is 6,000 years old cannot be right if the earth is 4.5 billion years old. And so, of course, there's that doesn't speak for all Christians. That doesn't, you know, doesn't speak for me personally. If anyone's interested in my personal point of view here, um, I, I think it's quite clear, frankly, uh, from the Bible um, that the earth is not 6,000 years old. Um, I don't know enough about geology and how you would perform the calculations to arrive at 4.5 billion years. Um, but I don't know of any evidence that would contradict that. Uh, to me, the Bible does not contradict that in any way at all. And so um, maybe we could dig into that sometime. Um, but there's definitely a, a notion. And I think, again, if you don't believe the Bible, this isn't going to mean anything to you. But there's good evidence from the Bible itself that, um, the, that, the, that the, the age of the earth and mankind is not 6,000 years old or 10,000 years old. You know, something trivial like that. Um, but maybe in a future episode we can dig into that. The other big contradiction. So I will say this as a, as a kind of as an aside, but I think helpful. It's very important to realize if there is a contradiction and where, if there is where that contradiction really is. So in the discussion we just had, the conflict is specifically around uh, a field of science, geology, and a particular group of people who interpret the Bible such that it's only uh, a few thousand years old. And so number one, it's helpful to realize, again, uh, if there is a conflict, in that case, there is a conflict, and then where that conflict actually lies. Okay. 
So the second big item here in this chapter, and I mean, there could potentially be a lot more, but what we'll cover here, the other conflict is around evolution. Evolution, so this uh, belief that we all got here through naturalistic or materialistic processes of um, adaptations over time, and we started out as a single-celled uh, organism and slowly, over many, many years, uh, became more complex living organisms, and that's how we got to where we are today. That would be a scientific claim, evolutionary uh, biology, not science in general, but specifically a claim within a field of science. So then you say, well, is that in conflict with God? Well, don't think so. But then you say, is it in conflict or is it in conflict with the particular religion's viewpoint? And here it's a little trickier um, because you do have, like we had this notion of, you know, young earth creationist or, or whatever we want to call them. Uh, within Christians on the evolution side, there's, there's different groups there. And so you have people that say, absolutely not. The biblical account in Genesis gives absolutely no room for this notion that we all arrived here through uh, naturalistic evolutionary processes. You have Adam, you know, the person in the beginning of the Bible being created as a full-grown living entity. Uh, from his side came forth Eve. So the first two people were created. That's the Bible. That's what it says. End of story. You have another group of people that say, well, based on the scientific evidence, it does seem to point out that um, we all came here from evolutionary processes. And uh, their point of view is they have no problem believing that. And what they say, though, is that God guided, guided that process, that it would be so improbable from a probability from a statistical perspective to actually have those things happen uh, by chance, there had to be a guiding force, had to be a guiding force uh, to make that come into being. Well, um, that would be, that would be in conflict. That would be in conflict. Um, at least the first one. So if you say, uh, I believe in evolution and God, you know, guided that process. Well, you, probably not, probably not a big conflict there. But if you say the first one, meaning uh, no evolution, God created all creatures, full grown process, there would be, there would be a contradiction there. And then you would need to explore that, explore that further. Okay, so mention I want to combine a couple of chapters here. And I think this chapter is worth digging into and reading a little bit more. This chapter is not on kind of the negative side, which is what gets most of the attention in uh, maybe online or in videos, media. And the attention there is where do they contradict? Where, do, where can you know, God and science or religion, where can they go to battle? You know, that gets all... That gets all the, the YouTube views and it gets all the podcast listens and those kind of things. But, you know, is there a question of, or can we explore the question, you know, do science and religion complement each other? Science and religion complement each other. 
And so let's, let's look into this a little bit. Okay, to the book. The Rational Intelligibility of the Universe. The goal of science, broadly, is to discover the order of the universe. But the feasibility of that goal depends on the assumption that the workings of the natural world can be discovered. We take this for granted, but we shouldn't. The universe is both understandable and logical, something mathematician and philosopher John Lennox calls the rational intelligibility of the universe. These characteristics allow us to do science in the first place. If the universe was just a hodgepodge of chaotic events ungoverned by structured laws, science would be a hopeless task. But why is the world intelligible rather than chaotic? If the universe is truly the product of unguided evolutionary forces, as atheists claim, there's no reason to expect that an elegant ordering of nature would have happened on its own. But if the universe is the product of intelligence, as Christians and other theists claim, we would expect it to be orderly, which would be a reflection of a rational designer. So in short, theism makes sense that the rational intelligibility of the universe in a way that atheism does not. That doesn't prove God exists, but it's a powerful example of how science and Christianity complement each other. So this is this is at this is out of the book here. Um, this is a really interesting area of exploration, and it really comes down to um, there seems to be evidence, um, a large body of evidence, that the entire naturalistic world is rational. It has laws, the laws of physics. Uh, it's governed by principles structured rules, let's say. Um, we talked about in previous episodes this notion of you know, fine-tuning, um, you know, over a hundred variables that if they were just slightly off, uh, there would be no life as we know it. But even beyond life, just the structure of the universal uh, forces or laws within nature. Why is it like that? Why is it like that? Why is there order? Why is there a rational order to the entire universe? And you could say, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And that could be a plausible explanation. But I think as a, at a minimum, at a minimum, we have to at least question, okay, number one, we have to acknowledge this is the case. And number two, why is it like this? It's an important line in this chapter that the very structure and reliability of this universe, this rational intelligibility, as it's phrased here by John Lennox, allows us, that fact alone allows us to do science in the first place. Well, why do you say that? Well, at the most basic level, you could imagine a scientific inquiry unfolding like this. I'm making an observation in the universe. Based on that observation, I realize that there is a, a problem or at least something worthy of further exploration. Then you may formulate a hypothesis to test out whether you, what is the cause of those observations. Then you actually run the test. You run the test 
and then you evaluate the results of that test to figure out whether it validated or invalidated your hypothesis. Why on earth would you think you could actually do that if in fact you did not think that there, there was some predictability, some rationality behind the very nature of conducting such a test, which would be, but even behind that, some rationality and some structure to the very nature of reality. So back to the book, Paul Davies acknowledges in his Templeton Prize address, in the last 300 years, the theological dimension of science has faded. People take it for granted that the physical world is both ordered and intelligible. The underlying order in nature, which is the laws of physics, are simply accepted as a given, as brute facts. Nobody asks where they came from. At least they do not do so in polite company. However, even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith that the universe is not absurd, that there is a rational basis to physical existence manifested as a law-like order in nature that at least partly is comprehensible to us. So science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. So essentially theological worldview is this notion that there is order and structure to it, to the universe itself. All right, let's keep marching through the book. The reliability of human reason. As we just saw, scientists couldn't do their work without an orderly universe to work on. But scientists also couldn't do their work without the human ability to reason in a reliable way. This ability is another example of something we take for granted, but shouldn't. Atheists believe our mental processes are fully determined by atoms moving around in our brains, the product of billions of years of unguided evolution. But if that's the case, there's no reason to assume any of our beliefs are true. They would simply be the result of various physical laws acting upon us. Some atheists, such as philosopher Tom Thomas Nagel, have acknowledged the uncomfortable implications of this fact. Nagel admits... Evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities that undermines their reliability and in doing so undermines itself. Most of us intuitively, intuitively believe, however, that we can trust in our reliability of our reasoning and that our thoughts are not just atoms colliding. This assumption is most consistent with a theistic worldview like Christianity, which claims that humans are made in the image of God. While theologians debate what the image of God encompasses, almost all agree that it includes a capacity for understanding and rational thought. This capacity, among other things, uniquely enables us to have a relationship with our Creator. So this is a really interesting topic here. Um, human rationality. So... We have discovered that there are laws of nature, the laws of physics. There is a rationality of the universe in which we study. Uh, scientists would study different areas of that universe. And then because we believe there is rationality behind it, then we go forth and conduct experiments. Experiments, like I just mentioned, problem statement, hypothesis, expected outcome, but then 
to explore the data. You know, I said the phrase, you'd validate or invalidate your hypothesis by looking at the conclusions of your experiment, the data that you just ran. Why on earth would you trust the reliability of your interpretation of that data? Well, you would do that because you believe that you are rational and that you have the capacity to think rationally and believe in the reliability of your claims. But why on earth would you do that if we were just a byproduct of atoms slamming into each other? This doesn't make any sense. So we in inherently or innately within us, we believe that we are rational. And that if we conduct logical steps towards a truth claim, then eventually, at least asymptotically, we could arrive at what the truth actually is. So in these cases, the, the rationality of the universe and the rationality of the human mind at least give further topics or further veins of exploration in this notion of science and religion complementing one, one another versus contradicting one another. All right, key points from the book. Although the alleged conflicts between science and religion get most of the attention in public discourse, science and religion complement each other in many important ways. We saw some examples already in part one, but in this chapter we looked at three more. The rationality or rational intelligibility of the universe, the reliability of human reason, and science and religion complementary sources of knowledge. The rational intelligibility of the universe ref refers to the fact that the universe is both understandable and logical, characteristics that allow us to do science. We would only expect that if the universe was a product of a mind. Scientists couldn't investigate this rational intelligibility, intelligible world without the human ability to reason, and to reason in a reliable way. Once again, we would only expect our minds to be reliable if they were the product of a mind. Science and the Bible are complementary sources of knowledge about the nature and reality, or the nature of reality, because some questions are outside the scope of each to answer on its own. So the last part about complementary knowledge is how I began the chapter with this, this story of her daughter writing on her hand, why does your thumb say die? And the answer is because I wrote it there, right? So there's different definitions of why, or there's differing degrees or levels that we could answer that question, why? Obviously, that is a correct answer. Why is that written on your thumb? Why is the word die written on your thumb? Well, it's a correct answer to say because she wrote it there. But there must have been a reason beyond beyond that. That's really not really even why is it there. That's how it got there. That's how it got there. What is there? Die. How it got there? I wrote it there. Why is there? Question mark. And so that's why we have to really consider that science in terms of being scoped to naturalism or materialism um, is extraordinarily helpful and useful in explaining and helping us understand the what and the how. What's in the universe? How does it work? It's not helpful in helping us answer the deeper question of why. So there are complementary explanations or complementary sources of knowledge to help us understand the very nature of reality. Okay. Now, in all fairness, as we close out this episode, um, the atheistic worldview would say uh, there is no why. 
there is no why. There is the what, and there's the how. There is no why, or at least not an objective why, or an absolute why that is universal. There is no real reason why those letters were written on her hand. The what is there, the ink is there, the how it's there as it was written, but there's no, there's no further exploration. There's no further reason to explore further because there's no explanation that we can arrive at via that further exploration. And people that have some notion of God, theism or beyond, some other notion, uh, don't, ex don't accept that. They want to explore further past the materialistic boundaries of a naturalistic worldview. And that's what we're exploring here in all of these series and truth labs. So we combined a couple of chapters today in this book, again, talking with your kids about God, 30 conversations every Christian parent must have by Natasha Crane. We combined a couple of chapters where science and religion contradict. Just really talked about two examples there, the age of the earth. Is there a contradiction there? Absolutely. If you believe the earth is 6,000 years old, geology says it's 4.5 billion, both of those cannot be true. Is there a conflict between science and religion on the notion of evolution? Well, it depends on where you go with your theistic worldview. If you believe evolution 100% true, as any evolutionary biologist would, but you also say that God guided those processes uh, throughout many millions and billions of years, um, I don't really see a conflict. I don't see a conflict in that. If you believe absolutely no evolutionary processes that have gone on, definite conflict there. But it's helpful as we're trying to make progress, or at least we're trying to progress in the conversations with people uh, to actually help one another arrive at the truth. We're not just battling for the sake of battling. We're actually trying to help one another. Then it's really helpful to not just see where things contradict, but to see where they complement, to see where they complement. And it does definitely seem to be evidence that says there is really a complementary kind of a Venn diagram overlap between the rationality or the rational intelligibility of the universe and the rationality and reliability of the human mind. If you bring those things together, basically science and religion, there's some overlap there, which we could see there really seems to be some complementary sources of knowledge. Now, again, obviously, it's not so straightforward. People have a lot of conflicts still, you know, beyond that. But I think it's at least helpful in a dialogue with somebody, whether that somebody is yourself or others, to say, while there are contradictions, while there are contradictions, there's also areas for that they complement one another. They complement one another. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap up uh, this episode here. Uh, the next one, and we may combine a couple ones going forward, depending on whether we think there's really uh, areas to explore in depth with one another and really advance the conversation. Um, but I think the next one may be, may be good to take on its own. This is, is God just an explanation for what science doesn't know yet? Is God the God of the gaps? Is it just an explanation we have a gap in knowledge and we just slide God in there to fill in gaps until we learn more about science and then we remove God from that gap 
and close it up with science. Big topic, big area of discord and discussion and discord between different people that have different points of view on that. So we'll pick that up in the next episode.